Well, hey, all you wiretappers out there, there's another kind of a, a short story. This is going to be actually from my own career, you know, making these for YouTube, kind of keep some more content going in YouTube and, and build up the channel as well as help build up my uh, audio channel. So, uh, you know, I've got a lot more content uh, on my audio channel for you guys that are just on YouTube. This is this is just to get more content out there. I don't know. I'm, I'm kinda, I guess I'm at... Uh, uh, I'm not doing so much right now other than the podcast. And so I thought I'd put some more content out. And I've been wanting to tell some of the stories from my career. Uh, now, this story I'm going to tell you today is actually in my movie, Brothers Against Brothers, The Savella Sparrow War. So if you've seen that, why you can, uh, you, you may not want to listen to it again, although it's it's always a good one, I think. it's And it's kind of, it, it will, I will tell you how I got started my first few weeks in the intelligence unit. You know, I came out of a, a small detective unit uh, out of the station. Uh, my good friend that I grew up with, Bobby Arnold, had had gotten himself into the intelligence unit. Uh, and, and the intelligence unit of any big police department usually only takes guys that are really vetted. And in a small town like Kansas City, you know, compared to New York or Chicago, it's easy to vet people and like Bobby known me since we were about seven years old. Uh, the guy that kind of helped Bobby get in, he'd known Bobby and his wife for, I don't know, since they were in high school, I think, and 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 knew something about their family. And, and, and so that's that's kind of how it worked in, in uh, Kansas City Intelligence Unit. And we worked close with, closely with the FBI, as you guys know, uh, uh, hand in glove, and, and, and they totally trusted us. So uh, and, and you could do that when you can reach that far back toward a grade school and 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 know about each other's families and, and where they came from in, in a small town. Uh, so uh, I go in the intelligence unit and and you know I won't denigrate the guys who were there, but some of them weren't doing very much. They'd been there too long, uh, and, and this often happens in in uh, units that people stay there too long and they get bored, they get jaded. They don't do so much anymore. And so Bobby and I go out and the Sergeant Larry Wisher gives us a, um, it's like a, a, a mandate here. Uh, I got a, a tip. I think he probably got it from the FBI about a used car lot about as Gregory or 80th and Truce about 80 blocks, 75 blocks south of downtown Kansas City. And it was right across the street from a cemetery, a huge big old cemetery had been there for a long time. And since probably the, the 20s or so, uh, teens and 20s, they created this Calvary Cemetery. And this is a used car dealer. And we go out there and he, he tells us that there's gonna be some mob guys hanging around, he heard. And I think he got it from the FBI. They probably got it from some source. So, so we go out there, we drive by and, and it's on a really busy, you know, one and a half lane commercial street with businesses all around. And, but yet on the opposite side where you can really see in, is only a cemetery there. You know, what would have been handy would have been right across the street or about three businesses up, had a parking lot with a bunch of other cars in it. We could have sat there and watched it, but there wasn't any way to sit and watch down into the, where the office was and behind the cars. You needed to be across the street to do that. You couldn't be on the same side of the street. One of the many little problems you learn when you start doing surveillances 
is position is everything. Uh, and if you get on a second floor across the street, see right down in their throat or third floor or fourth floor where you can still don't, don't have to, you're not too far away, but yet you're on top of them. That's, that's the ideal. And they never look up for the most part. People don't usually look up. We drive up and down, we drive around and, and, you know, it's really hard to see anything. And there's cars blocking the front, the front door to the office and see the D tags. And, and we check the D tag and call over to the Department of Revenue and find out it's a guy named Joe Sibliano. Well, Joe Sibliano was an unknown guy at that time. He was known in the mob world, but he was an unknown to mob investigators a little bit with the bureau they said oh yeah he's he's like a you know kind of a periphery guy and had this used car lot you know been in the used car business for a long time as best we could find out he was probably you know i was 35 34 and, and he was probably 45 maybe even 50 at the time and we pick up some other tags and and one tag we picked up and the name of a little company was a tow truck tag and a little name of a company it didn't have anything to do with the car lot. We drove by there, you know, several times that day and the next day, and we see the, the tow truck there. We, I think we saw Joe, who we thought was Joe Sibiliano going in and out, but you just can't just drive by and see what's really going on. So, we brainstorm and, and I think Bobby came up with this idea. Well, I wonder if we can get in that cemetery and if we had one of those funeral tents that there was a funeral going on. We said, well, heck, let's just go ask the guy if, he, if he'll put up a funeral tent. So, so we go across the street to the cemetery and, and we approach the guy and just say, hey, you know, we're the police and, and we'd like to put up a cemetery tent right over by Truce by the street. And we want all four sides covered. And we want it there for about, you know, give us a week. And, you know, after a week, we figure these guys might start noticing, well, you know, why don't they do something with that cemetery tent? Is there going to be a funeral over there? I haven't seen anything. It's still there. So I would draw their attention after about a week. And he said, yeah, sure. Be happy to. He's kind of excited. And, you know, lots of times people like this business people, you want to use their second floor office to look out or, or get some help, uh, uh, I had a, uh, a, a real estate guy. I wanted to get in the basement of a restaurant. So I, I went to him and I said, you know, I'd like to get down that basement. And, you know, how do you do that? And, and of course, you know, you can't, I didn't want to break in particularly. And he said, I tell you what, he said, I'll tell him that you guys are gas inspectors. And, and they, there's been a complaint of a gas leak somewhere around. So he goes over there with us and <laughs> he goes up and says, hey, these are, these are guys from the gas company. They need to check the basement out for leaks. We had a complaint of a gas leak uh, somewhere in this block. And the guys said, well, yeah, I'll go ahead. And we got to go down in that basement. So, so this, this, really, this uh, cemetery manager, he was, he was pretty excited about helping us. Knowing that, I'm sure he went home and told all of his friends and family. We get in there and we're able that we can get there before that the used car dealers don't get there to crack it on, as you might guess. We get there about 830 or so in the morning. We go to the office at eight o'clock and grab our equipment, you know, a, a camera with a lens and a, and a tripod. And, and we run on out there and, and we put all that in there. And one of us stays in there with it. And the other guy goes and drives the car off and hides it, then walks back over, keeping the tent between him and the uh, uh, car lot all the time and goes in the tent. And so we can see out between the flaps. You think about those flaps. Uh, flaps are like that. 
And, and so you only need about that much with a, a camera lens. And, and if you get it up close to the flap, so we set her up and, and start watching. And, and, you know, these are long, boring days. Uh, I don't know if you guys ever sat and watched something with little activity for several hours at a time, but it, it could be a long, boring day. And of course, you tell 18 jillion stories. And, and, and it's just, I don't know how. We always could entertain ourselves. One of us would slip out and go get some sandwiches and bring them back and, and that kind of thing. And, but pretty soon, you know, Joe Sibliano shows up, another guy shows up, and he's driving a D-tag, so he can't really tell, and we don't recognize him. Then a guy shows up that, and, and Bobby knew him, and said, well, that's Jimmy Duarte. Well, Jimmy Duarte was a made guy who, who was the, uh, the nephew of, of one of our Prohibition-era gangsters, uh, uh, Tano Lococo, he was part of what they called the Sugar Shack Gang. Uh, there was the, the five iron men that really ran the mob during Prohibition were the first kind of after the mustache Pete's and, and before our current boss, Nick Sabella. These were the guys that, that were in their 30s during the uh, Prohibition and, and really ran Prohibition, made all the money. Uh, so this guy, Jimmy Duarte, he is somebody and he's a kind of guy that he doesn't really fit in with Nick Savella. He has his own action. He always stays out south. We're, we're like, like I said, 80 blocks south of the city market, for example, where the, you know, kind of the mob headquarters, so to speak, in the, the North End or Little Italy and the, the social club called The Trap. We're 80 blocks south of that. And, and, and this was his domain. Anything out in this domain uh, any bars, any action going on down there, that was Jimmy Duarte's. And he also raged on further south. He had gotten involved in a, trying to take over a whole county in a, uh, a, a lake called the Grand Lake of the Cherokees down in Oklahoma, northeastern Oklahoma, right, right along the border of Missouri in, in Arkansas. And it was a, a, a tourist area, and, and he really bought off the county prosecutor and the sheriff and, and bought two or three clubs. He was going to open them up for gambling and, and prostitution and, and uh, you know, after hours drinking, any, any hour drinking and, and just have a wide open county. And he had that going until he got caught. <laughs> and they, they tried to kill a bar owner who wasn't going along with the plan and they didn't get him killed. Duarte, uh, uh, Duarte's guy, a guy named Chuck Bishop. And, and an Indian guy named Jack Michael King had thrown in this. He was out of Tulsa. It's kind of the, I don't know, you wouldn't call it the Indian mafia, but this guy was, it was a big Indian influence in, in uh, Oklahoma. And, and this guy was part Indian. And, and, and he was kind of like organized crime in Tulsa at the time. And, but yeah, they didn't get that guy shot. And, and the guy testified, Duarte ended up doing some time. And it just got out of Leavenworth for, from that caper. And he's showing up at this car lot every day and, and so we start seeing people drop by and he'll go out from the little office he'll go out and talk to them out in the lot and we're picking up these tags and and one of them was like a black guy who had been in Leavenworth with Duarte from uh from Detroit Michigan and he was a big time drug dealer up there and and, and other local professional boosters would stop in and, and they'd have these conversations with Duarte so we're, we're documenting all this and during that time, you know, uh, that was, he was the only mob, real mob guy we were seeing, but we were going to learn more. We <laughs> remember the tow truck I said, I saw over there and a little company name on it. 
which I'm not going to use, and the license tag on it. So I run their tag on it, and it comes back to this tow company, and they're over on Prospect about Gregory and Prospect. It was about like 15 blocks due east of Gregory and Troost, where the car lot was. And, and this guy hadn't been showing up. We were there a week, and, and we took a lot of great pictures and made all these connections with Jimmy Duarte. But after a week, you kind of need to move on. And and we weren't seeing any of the Savellas or, or any of the other big guys coming down. Uh, so we go, well, I, I, I tell Bobby, I said, you know, and I, and I remember this was my idea here for sure. Uh, I said, let's go talk to that guy. And in the intelligence unit, historically, they had not really gone and developed too many sources. They mainly wanted to watch and wait and write down license numbers and then give it to the FBI. And the FBI were out, were out developing sources all the time. I just come out of a, uh, yeah, I'm saying I lost the word, out of a detective unit. And we were always out trying to develop sources in, among the like little kid burglars and stuff on the streets because we mainly work residential burglaries and I was always snagging little local kids and saying okay who's doing the burglaries in this neighborhood when we get a little spur to burglaries and, and uh, Bob said okay and, and we just went over, went over to these this body shop and this guy's name was John his wife worked with him walked in through a bad badge on him through a badge on him and you know it was he had this look of like oh shit and then he got it under control quickly grabbed a cigarette of course and nervously lit a cigarette and got it under control and, and acted like he was you know he was king shit now uh, you know, hey, what, do you, what do you cops want and so we started chatting him up and said you know you used to you used to see your tow truck over at that uh uh I can't even remember that, the car dealership, right? Little used car lot over on Truce. I haven't seen you there for a while. You know, I'm just, I'm interested in those people that are always said, those are bad people. I don't have anything to do with them at all. I said, well, who runs that? And he said, Joe Sevillano. He said, you know, he's an asshole. He's no good. He said, you know, they'll cheat you. He said, I don't want anything to do with them. I helped him repost some cars and things and, and uh, go tow in broken cars. And, and they had a little repair shop there and would help them with that. But, you know, I don't really hang around there anymore. I said, okay, John, we left. We just kept coming back. Uh, I came back in there by myself several times. It's kind of like easier to like, form a relationship with somebody when there's just one I'm in. And I kind of connect with the guy and I'd always, I, I didn't really smoke that much. I usually only smoked when I drank back then all my life. I only smoked when I drank. Anyhow, I, I, I'd say, yeah, give me one of those when they were menthol, they were cools, menthol. They give me one of those cigarettes. So John and I'd share a cigarette and coffee and, and we'd talk about everything. And I'd ask him about the body shop business. And I'd ask him, I said, I had this old 75 Mustang that, that had a lot of rust damage on it. And, and what would it take to, to get some of that rust damage fixed up and, and start getting this thing and need the wiring change. It was a flood car is what it was. And, and, the, and the connectors, and all the wiring were corroding like crazy. And, and he, you know, he talked about that. We talked about that, a lot of other things. And, and I think he even took my other car out and had him detail it. Because I was thinking about trading this other car, this Oldsmobile I had. And, and uh, he talked about, he detailed cars. And I said, hey, you want to detail it? So I took it out. And he gave me a really good price, of course. And because I was a police and he figured he could use me for something someday. <laughs> And he detailed my car. And I never forget, I kept that car for another five years. Uh, I liked it so well after he detailed it. Uh, but John, you know, as we, he gets comfortable with me, finally, he says, I got to tell you something. 
I said, well, what's that, John? He said, you know, you probably already know this, but, you know, I said, well, what, John? Well, <laughs> he said, you know, Carl Spiro. And Carl Spiro was a, a mob associate who was, gonna, is, was in the beginnings of a war with the Savella family. Nick Savella was a boss, and his brother Cork, and the underboss, Tuffy DeLuna, which that Brothers Against Brothers movie go, goes into that big time. So he said, Carl Spiro, you know him? And I said, yeah, I, I've heard of Carl. And he said, well, you know, he, uh, he used to come out there all the time. I said, oh, really? Yeah. I said, I, I, I never noticed him out there. Yeah, he said he was coming out there all the time meeting people. And, and, and he met a couple of guys that really were scared. It really scared me. He said he had some bad people that he knows. But I said, well, so what do you need to tell me? He said, well, Carl called me one time and asked me to bring my tow truck and come down here about 50, 75 miles south of Kansas City and pull his truck and trailer out of the ditch with a bulldozer on it. I said, oh, really? And he said, yeah. He said, I went down there and he said, there was a bulldozer on a low boy behind a, a, a trailer. It was a smaller bulldozer, a, a D9, D8. I, I can't remember the, but it was a smaller bulldozer. What a great big one. And, and he said, I pulled him out. And he said, I think that was a stolen bulldozer. And I'm about sure it was. And I said, oh, okay. Well, you know, John, I said, let me check on that. I, I go back and tell Sarge, Sarge, you know, here's the deal. What are we going to do? And he said, let me check with the bureau. So he calls Owsley over to the FBI. And, and Owsley says, well, let me, let me check on it. And, and he started asking around and, and, and somebody, and I think I still call, started calling another police departments. And I found in a small jurisdiction, uh, Shawnee or Mission or something like that, one of the suburban jurisdictions, somebody had stolen a, a caterpillar from a construction site about the time frame when he was talking about. We had the numbers and everything off of it. The Bureau didn't know about it yet. And so we, Alzheimer's got in on this and he said, well, he said, you know, he said, if we can find that, that makes him a good informant. And he know, I said, you know, I told him, I said, he knows more. He knows a lot more, but we get this a little bit of a hammer on him. And I know he feels like this would be a hammer. So I go back and I said, you know, John, it was a stolen bulldozer. I found it. It was stolen over here in Shawnee. Uh, I said, maybe we can find that thing and get it back. And, and, you know, if you'll keep talking to me, you know, your part in this, you'll be covered, dude, you are covered. So he, he bought that and, and he was covered. Uh, he didn't, I don't know. He, it'd be hard to make him to really implicate him in it unless maybe some of one of Carl Spiro's people would say, yeah, he knew all about it. And, you know, maybe he did, I don't know. Uh, anyhow, we, we go down in the middle part of the state, uh, John and I and another detective there came along to help. He had a lot more experience than I did. He, Ray Kenny had been in the unit a long time and, and the boss thought that he ought to go along on this deal. So we go down and, and we contact a, a county sheriff, not in that county, but the next county over it was a retired Kansas City policeman that we knew because we heard this county sheriff in this one county where, where, they, where John towed the bulldozer out was, was a little bit shaky. That guy started asking quit. We looked around, we couldn't, we couldn't figure out exactly. We figured out about where it was that he pulled him out of the ditch, but, but from there, John didn't know where it went. Ended up talking to, to this other retired KCPD guy who's a, a deputy in the county over, and he knows a lot of people, so he asked a lot of questions around kind of on the people he knew, and he figured out who had just bought this bulldozer. And, and 
I think it, I can't remember how they did it. I don't, I don't think they let it walk, but you know, I can't remember. Uh, I know they figured out where it was and that's the last of my memory of it. Uh, so John, you know, we, I keep meeting with him and he starts telling stories. He said, yeah, he said that, that Carl Sparrow, he had this Leonard Krigo, the guy they called the Arab. They got him out of prison. He said, I used to go back into the parts room behind the office where Carl would meet people. And I'd listen at the wall. You could hear him talking. And they talked about how they had to get this guy out of jail and his cousin at a meat market. He was going to provide him a job so he could get out on parole. And, and when he showed up, he said, that's the scariest dude I ever met. And, and we knew he's, he was called the Arab and his last name was Krigo, which we assume spelled C-R-E-G-O. And, and from that, I figured out it was a guy named Leonard Krigo who was, who was out was in for a 10-year bit for an armed robbery, a, a pretty good size armed robbery of a uh, grocery store, a big grocery store. And he had, he had actually kidnapped the owner to take him back into the store to open the safe. And he had, and he had two guns and he locked the owner in the trunk of his own car. So, and he got caught on that one and, and, and Spiros had got him out by providing this job in this uh, meat market that, that his cousin controlled. It was kind of a, you know, all these guys are all mob connected, of course, you know. Mobs always been in the meat business uh, back in those days, especially there's a lot of ways to cheat people in the meat business. And so Krigo, we start asking around about him. And then this guy tells us about a couple other people, a guy over in Blue Springs, another suburb that, that was meeting with Carl all the time. And he said he had some kind of nasty business going on. I can't tell you what it was. There's a guy with no record. His sister was a, a civilian clerk at the police department. Uh, his name was Jimmy Farron and, and a couple of other guys uh, that were meeting Sparrow all the time. And they were like kind of part of Sparrow's little clique, little gang. And so we're, we're documenting that, putting all that together as this mob war between Sparrow and the uh, Savellas is developing. And John just keeps working for me and, and digging up stuff. Now, he couldn't really go back and be get close to Carl Sparrow. He was not that, if it would have been funny, if he'd gone back around, we'd set Sparrow down and tried to put him in on him, it would have been too funny because, you know, these guys will smell that out in a minute. And, and you know, he didn't, we'd end up getting him killed is what we do. And, and he wasn't, you know, he just wasn't that guy, but he was a guy that, that they use and, and would never bring in too far. And, and for a long time after that, he continued to give me information about all kinds of different things. He was the kind of guy uh, that I could put him in to any place and he would at least go in and talk. Now, you know, kind of a funny little thing about it, working informers like this, they want to bring you in to be part of it. Like they know they're, they're doing these things and they want to bring you in. So one time he said, you know, he said, I always carry a gun to a briefcase when I go into these different places for you. I, I said, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm like, okay, <laughs> don't tell me too much. He said, I need some bullets. He said, run out here to the gun shop out, out there. And you always, you got to sign for bullets even then. <laughs> He said, go get me a, a, a case of 45s. I'm not a case of 50. I think it came in a box of 50, a box of 45s. He said, I need bullets. So I, I wanted this guy bad. So I ran out and bought the bullets, signed my name for him, took them back and gave them to him. I always kind of thank God he didn't use those bullets that I bought. And they traced back to me to go kill somebody. It, would, it wouldn't be a crime. I don't think it'd just be kind of embarrassing for me. But, but that was when he was, I had a guy who was in a, a, another body shop. 
who was bragging that he was a mob guy and, and the body shop owner was Italian, but he wasn't really, uh, you know, we didn't know anything about him being connected, but you know, could be. And, and this guy with this tow truck was bragging to everybody he was connected. He also was making small sales of, of marijuana to uh, a, a guy who was a source for a DEA agent. And, and so they came to us with this and they said, what do you know about this uh, car lot over here on Independence Avenue? This guy's name was Simone. Uh, you know, we looked, we said, well, we know about the Simones. Pete Simone is kind of the main bookie, but this guy is, uh, he must be a cousin or something because we can't really connect him other than the same name. He does have a relative who is a uh, college professor at UMKC and, and we just can't connect him up. And so I said, well, let me try something. And I got John, I said, go down there and hang out and, and see if you can work some kind of a deal with them about, you know, like offer them, some, you bring them some business if they'll give you a kickback or something like that. So he went down there and he ended up meeting this tow truck driver that was selling marijuana, was making, making all this talk like he was a big time mob guy. And, and I, can't, I don't remember exactly what he said, but, you know, talk about breaking legs for people and doing arsons, you know, and I, you know, I could take care of that, you know, just you know, tell me you got an insurance policy, I'll take care of that, you know, I, I do that all the time for the boys, you know, uh, and, and, and kind of that talk, you know, if you need some, a debt collectors, you know, I do this all the time for the guys, you know, we always talk about the, the, the guys, the big boys and, and, uh, so John, he, you know, he gets the same vibe from him, but he can't, they don't really trust him enough and he can't really get in. And, and we ended up working this and working it and by making more marijuana, small marijuana buys and then getting a female agent to go in and he's promising he's going to make a big, you know, like hundred pound sale and, and he can't seem to come through and, and, but they have about 10 buys on him. So they just decided, okay, they're going to try to flip him and bring, go at him with, you know, these 10 separate counts, uh, none of which, you know, DEA, usually they can't bring uh, small buys, you know, like nickel bag buys or even $25, you know, I don't know exactly how that works. We just call them nickel bag, dime bag buys, you know, even, even $100 buys of marijuana. They're not, they're, you know, for the DEA and U.S. attorney, they're not going to take that. County prosecutor will, barely. So, they, you know, they have a meeting with the district U.S. attorney, uh, uh, the uh, uh, U.S. attorney's office, one of the strike force attorneys said, you know, it looks like a mob guy, mob deal, but we can't really make any real connections. But I say we come down on him with, a, with a, an indictment and then see if we can flip him, find out what's going on, where he's getting this marijuana, supposedly, although he hadn't really uh, shown it. Uh, and hadn't really shown anything else that we could see. We followed him all over the place, never saw him, you know, threaten anybody or intimidate anybody or beat anybody up or anything. And he actually, with this informant, kind of a little side story, this informant had a, uh, uh, had a universal life preacher uh, certificate. He was a preacher and, and he said he could marry him. And this guy had, a, and so this tow truck guy, uh, I want to say his name, uh, his name, it was, I want to say Mühlbach. It was, it was a German name. I remember that, the name he was using. And, and he actually had a heart attack and he had a girlfriend and he asked our informant, you know, DA's informant to come into his 
hotel hospital room and marry him and his girlfriend that time he was afraid he was going to die what's the guy did i remember that the agent was joking about to wire him up to record the ceremony <laughs> so they uh, uh yeah this is all going on and, and we can't figure out who this guy is and, and i i was he had some connection to independence and i called over to independence police department another suburban area and they said, yeah, we, you know, we had this old traffic ticket on him. And, you know, funny thing on his driver's license, it says the address is 811 Grand. Well, 811 Grand was the U.S. courthouse. And at that time was the, was the office for the FBI and the ATF and the DEA had some offsites, but it was office for all the uh, law enforcement and the U.S. Marshals, of course, because the courts were all there. And the U.S. Marshals, if you remember, they're running the witness protection, WITSEC. And so you get a little clue that there's something going on. And in the meantime, I've got a connection down at the uh, fingerprint ID people and Harley's trying to run his traps. He's a DEA agent to figure out who this guy is. And the guy I know at uh, our fingerprint ID calls uh, somebody that he knows really well back in Washington with the FBI at that NCIC fingerprint thing. And he comes back to me, he said, you know, he said, I can't tell you very much, but you just gotta leave that guy alone. Uh oh. So we get a hold of uh, the DEA agency. Oh yeah, I said, I just found out he's a relocated government witness from uh, from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And if you, and if you look at my old podcast and find the Milwaukee leg breaker, you'll find out a lot more about that guy. So that was, uh, you know, that's kind of the story of working with an informant early on and, and, and how those things all spin off and lead to this place and lead to that place. You just never know where things are going to go once you start trading along with a guy who's who gets into different things who puts himself into situations for you and and where they're going to lead is it, it's that's why it's the greatest job in the world and they paid me for it too thanks a lot guys and and don't forget look out for motorcycles and uh you know if you have a problem with ptsd or your brother or some relative does just google ptsd and the veterans administration there's a hotline and even if you aren't a vet if you're a vet for sure they got a lot of resources for you and even if you aren't a vet you can find out resources and dealing with that problem so uh, uh i appreciate all the support you've given me don't forget to hit me up on venmo at Jinx Law or buy me a cup of coffee and buy me a cup of coffee app. And I've got my movies that I've mentioned, you know, just Google my, just go to my name and Google mob documentaries and, and Gary Jenkins and, and my phone just fell on the floor. <laughs> Thanks folks.